all anchored in Christ, all purchased by Christ, all sustained by Christ. So thank you for that hope that we have this morning, not in a wishful thinking way, but in a confident expectation way. And I pray for anyone who is here who has a false hope, is putting their hope in wrong things about not just life, but ultimately about where they're at with you, or that even today you might open their eyes to see that Jesus and only Jesus is the way. So would you draw near now as we seek your face? Would your spirit work among us, Lord, to do only what you can do? Uh, These are just words and sound waves unless they come with power by your spirit. So we ask you to work now in Jesus' name. Amen. Is religion good for you? That was a headline I saw last month. And the answer, according to an extensive Gallup poll, was yes, there are some benefits in terms of both physical and mental well-being. But even though religion can be an advantage, as we'll see next week, our text for today clarifies it is not necessarily the same as having a relationship with God. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 2 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter, Romans chapter 2. Paul has been building a case that all people everywhere desperately need the power of God to be rescued from our fallen condition. He wants us to be convinced that everyone without exception needs God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin in sin. And so he started off in chapter 1 with a dark description of people who have rejected God and replaced him with worthless idols. And then in chapter 2, he confronts morally respectable people who would say, I'm not as bad as those wretches in chapter 1. I'm a pretty good person. And just last Sunday after the service, a brother told me a story about a woman sharing in a small group. And after several others had shared their story, she began her testimony by saying, well, I wasn't a big sinner. And Paul is arguing, we're all big sinners. We're all big sinners. There's no such thing as a little Sinner, We all desperately need God's saving grace. And this morning he's going to address religious people. And even though today's passage is specifically addressed to Jews, do not be too quick to assume it doesn't apply to you. God just might have a message that rescues you from a false hope this morning. So first, Paul tells us that religious identity does not guarantee that we have a relationship with God. So if you're in Romans 2, verse 17, starts with the phrase, but if you bear the name Jew. And the term Jew has been in the news a lot lately. It's both an ethnic and a religious 
designation. Jews are physically descended from Abraham and had a special status as God's chosen covenant people. And yet, some presumed on that identity as if that was sufficient in itself to be in good standing with God. So, for example, go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. It says in verse 3 that John the Baptist came into all the district around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then the following verses are a quote from Isaiah 40 that that was his role. But then look at verse 7, 8. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So don't even think about thinking your connection with Abraham is enough to be right with God. Don't put your confidence in being part of a certain group of people. If you don't repent, you will experience God's wrath. Abraham's blood in your veins is no guarantee you will be spared from that judgment. Now, I don't know anyone here who is ethically or religiously Jewish. Most of us would identify as Christians, Roughly 2.4 billion people on earth self-identify as Christians, including about 80% of Americans. It's a very common label with a very broad definition. Or you might say, I was raised in a Christian home. Or you might even be more specific and say, I'm a Baptist or whatever group you identify with. And that can be good, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have a relationship with God or are part of his people. So just this morning, I remembered a statistic when I was doing jail ministry um, in Florida. 53% of the inmates in the Florida State Prison are Baptist. <laughs> There's something wrong with that picture. So identification with some religious group Jewish or Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or whatever it is, is not the same as being part of God's people. Next, Paul insists that access to religious truth is not enough to ensure that all is well with God. So the rest of verse 17 back in Romans 2 says, and rely upon the law. Rely means to have dependence or confidence in something. So I rely on Pioneer Auto to take care of my car. And here are people relying on the law. What are they relying on the law for? And if we look at another letter of Paul, we'll find out. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 21. 
I do not nullify, let's cancel out, the grace of God, his kindness shown to those who deserve his wrath. For if righteousness, a right standing with God, being right in God's sight, comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So if there's a way to be right in God's sight by keeping the law, then there was no need for the cross. Wouldn't, wouldn't be necessary. It's just you do it. Keep the law. Or 321 of Galatians, is the law contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So if it was possible, sure, get life, eternal spiritual life by keeping the law. But he says it isn't possible. But though it was never intended to be used that way, some Jews saw the law as a ladder to climb up to heaven. And righteousness, being right in God's sight, was about doing a good job keeping the law. But God never designed the law as a way to achieve righteousness. So if you're still in Galatians, look at 2.16. Galatians 2.16, nevertheless, knowing a man is not justified, declared right in God's sight, by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No one's going to make it based on keeping the law. And then 3.24. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So think of the law as an x-ray. An x-ray shows Something's broken, but it can't fix what's broken. It can point you to the one who can. So the law says you've broken God's law, and it points us Jesus is the one who can forgive that and change that. Well, not only that, those who were relying on the law were not even keeping it. They had it. They knew it. They were even teaching it to others, but they were breaking it. So the rest of... 217 and following back in Romans. You bear the name Jew, rely on the law, you boast in God, and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So no one here is relying on the law for your righteousness, though it's possible you're depending on the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount or some list of rules to try to gain favor with God that he would accept and approve you. 
But all of us have a Bible. We have access to God's revealed truth. But knowing the Bible, having a Bible is no substitute for obeying what it says. And so Howard Hendricks tells a story about a middle school kid who had memorized 700 verses. That's impressive. That's a lot of verses. Well, that same kid was stealing money out of the Sunday school offering every week. And they found out it was him. And they said, um, Billy or whatever, could you quote Ephesians 4.28 for us? Sure. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Quoted it perfectly. Total disconnect between knowing the Bible and doing what it says. And the point in these, this section is having access to religious truth, whether it's the law or the whole Bible, does not mean that a person knows God in a personal relationship. So religious identity and access to religious truth can be good things, but they are not enough to have a relationship with God. And the same is true of religious observances. So back in Romans 2, pick it up in verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he who is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So circumcision was a medical procedure performed on male babies as a distinctive physical sign that they belonged to God's covenant people. It distinguished them from everyone else around them. So you might remember David saying about Goliath, this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like the bear and lion I killed when I was a shepherd. In other words, he doesn't belong to God's people. We are God's covenant people, and so God will give us the victory. But like the law, circumcision had become something Jews relied on for a right status with God. Many Jews assumed that this religious observance meant they belong to God's people. And Paul insists that such people are overestimating the value of circumcision. Receiving the symbol of the covenant is not nearly as important as living out the covenant by 
obedience. Going through an outward ritual is not the same as experiencing the inward reality. He even says that there are people who think they are Jews who are really non-Jews, and there are people who haven't performed the ritual who are counted as true Jews. Why? Because they have experienced a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, Holy Spirit. So here's a few other verses about that. Go to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. Verse 16. God says to his covenant people who have already had a physical circumcision, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Verse 6, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So he calls people, you have a heart issue, and he says, I'll fix that heart issue. Foreshadowing of the new covenant, isn't it? Or go to Galatians again, Galatians chapter 5. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. That's what means something. The religious outward symbol doesn't matter. What matters is a genuine faith that shows its reality by working through love. That's what matters. Or Galatians 6, 15. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision anything, but a new creation so remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. It's a miracle just like the first day of creation. Let there be light, there's light. Let there be a new life, there's life. That's what matters. Having that miracle done for you by God so that you are a new creation. The outward symbols don't matter. And I know none of us are counting on circumcision as our insurance for heaven, but it's very possible to count on other kinds of religious observance as the basis of our assurance that we're right with God. So here's a couple. It's possible to think that our baptism, either as a baby or a 12-year-old or even older, is a sign that we belong to God's people. Or that time that we went forward at the end of the service, there was an altar call and we went forward. That means we're all set and we don't need to be concerned about your eternal destiny anymore. And this passage is reminding us, don't put your hope in an outward religious observance. What matters is the heart. What matters is a new creation. What matters is a reality of a relationship with God, not just rituals that you can do without knowing God. So one example would be Simon's response to Philip's message in Acts 8. We saw this in Sunday school this morning. Go to Acts 8, verse 12 and 13. 
But when they believe Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. So you might look at that and go, huh, Simon must be a Christian. But keep reading, verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. And perish means be lost. Die eternally separated from God in hell. May your money perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right with God. So he believed in some sense of the word. He was baptized on a profession of faith, and yet his heart's not right before God, and he's in danger of perishing forever. So we don't want to be too quick to look at outward things, outward observances, and assume in our own lives or somebody else, oh, they're all set. It's even possible to be involved in some impressive religious activities and not be welcomed into heaven on the last day. Go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And we could substitute, Lord, Lord, I went to church. Lord, Lord, I gave money in the offering plate. Lord, Lord, I sent a shoebox to Operation Christmas Child. Didn't you see the video? And still hear the awful words from Jesus himself, depart from me. I never knew you. There was never a relationship between us. Which makes it no wonder that Paul would write to professing Christians in a church, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith or don't you know this about yourself that Christ Jesus is in you unless you fail the test. Professing Christians in a church, he says, don't be so sure, check it out. Make sure, we saw that in Hebrews, be diligent to Realize full assurance of hope. 2 Peter 1.10, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Don't just take it for granted because you identify in a religious group or have religious truth available to you or have gone through some religious ceremonies. 
And if God is convicting you, you're leaning on a false hope. First acknowledge, I have a broken relationship with God because of my sin. I am guilty of doing what God forbids, and I have failed to do what God requires in thought, word, and deed. Isaiah 59.2 says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. The second, acknowledge, I cannot do anything, including religious things, that would make things right with God. He doesn't need anything from me. He won't accept anything from me. I have nothing to offer or contribute. I have empty hands. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not according to deeds we have done, but according to his mercy. And third, I repent of my rebellion against God. I trust in Christ alone to do everything necessary to rescue me from sin and restore me to God. I believe his death on the cross is the only way my sins could be forgiven. There's nothing I can do to take away my sins. And I believe Jesus rose from the dead to show he's able to save to the uttermost, which means completely and forever, those who come to God through him. And so Paul says in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, rescued forever. And for those trusting in Christ this morning, here's a couple possible applications that came to my mind. They are not directly from the text. Paul doesn't say, therefore, give us a nice, clear, obvious, direct connection. They are indirectly connected in terms of spiritual benefits that we may or may not have had. So... One category of people here or listening online would be if you were raised in a Christian home or are being raised in a Christian home right now. Brought to church. Have a Bible in your house. Be thankful to God. Those are incredible privileges and blessings that most people in this world do not have. They don't and can't make you a Christian. Period. But they are often the means God uses to bring people to himself and also the means God uses to spare them from many troubles and heartaches they would have if they were brought up in a different home. So be thankful. And if you didn't have that, which many of us didn't, thank God for bringing you to himself. You weren't hearing it at home. You weren't hearing it at the church you grew up in. You weren't exposed to some of these things. And God, in his grace, rescued you and me. So, yes, it's a bonus if we saw... Oh, I'm not too sorry. So, if you didn't have that, start a new legacy for your family. You can model a Christian marriage. You can demonstrate what biblical parenting looks like. You can go to church and have family devotions and give your family some significant spiritual benefits, whether you had them or not. Doesn't matter. It's a bonus. It's a bonus if we saw a good model of that. But that's not the main thing. And what I tell people, because different brothers will talk to me about this, I just say, you know, the New Testament was written to first-generation believers. They had never seen a Christian family before in their lives. 
But these new believers were called to love their wives and cooperate with their husband's leadership and not provoke their children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How are they going to do that? Can they say, well, Paul, we never saw it. We can't do it. The way they're going to do it is by following God's instructions and depending on his grace to enable them to do what he called them to do, which is the same thing for us. We want to learn what God has said about marriage and parenting and everything else in his word and then ask for grace to work in us and work in our homes so that we live out what he calls us to do. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we just thank you for your grace that rescued us maybe out of a nice Christian home maybe out of a nice non-Christian home, maybe out of a dysfunctional non-Christian home. But Lord, many here have experienced your saving mercy and grace in Christ. And we say thank you. And we want to live the way you've called us to live, including in our homes, we want to demonstrate your love in our marriage and our parenting. We want to point our kids and grandkids to Christ. We want to point one another to your word. Lord, you have been so good to us, and we give you thanks. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is here this morning or listening online who does not have a genuine relationship with you who has a false hope that everything's okay with you when it's not. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would show them where they really are before you, convict them, and draw them to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.